You are now listening to the February 24th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. We will listen to a praise song and begin our program with Christianese 101. Jesus 
This is Dawn, and I'm the host of this program, Christianese 101. As a Christ believing member of the Heavenly Family of God, there are certain rules that the Lord has set. But what exactly are those rules? In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, it says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy. Because I am holy. God has given the command for us to be holy because He is holy. So, what does holy mean? In order for us to be holy, we must first know the meaning of holy. Generally, when we speak of holy or the word holiness, people think of something special and supernatural, and they expect an entirely different ambience. If you grew up inside a church setting and heard the word said only in church, you would think of that right away. But we cannot help wonder if this is also influenced by the official dictionary definition of the word. If you look up the word holy in the Merriam Webster dictionary, it says connected to a god or a religion, religious and morally good. Used in phrases that show surprise or excitement. You can see why many people perceive this word with such a heavy religious meaning. However, the word holy used in the Bible has an entirely different meaning. The Hebrew word for holy is kadesh. This word strongly means set apart for God. Then, where and how is this word used? We need to interpret this word with scripture. The Bible states, Therefore, be holy because I am holy. How does this help us to understand the definition of holy? In other words, what is God setting himself apart from? In the beginning, God the Creator was set apart from his creation. Additionally, he's also set apart from sin. Because of his righteousness. There is none like God, and that is why our God is truly God. He is dependent on no one, and because of that, he himself is set apart from everything. Just as God is holy and set apart from sin, he is calling us to be set apart from sin as well. What does this mean, and how can we do it? Before, God said, Therefore, be holy because I am holy. There is something else that he said. 
Do you remember what it is? The scripture states, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. This literally means that the Lord our God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. In this point in time, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. God took his people out of Egypt and put them into the land he had promised to Moses, which was Canaan. We who are living today are slaves to sin and death, and the Lord has promised to take us to the promised land, heaven, through Jesus Christ. This is a parallel situation to that of the Israelites. Therefore, he is setting us apart from the rest of the world and making us holy. He set apart the Israelites from Egyptians, and in the same way, he is setting us apart from the rest of the secular world. God wants us to be holy because He is holy. By not conforming to the pattern of this world, and as Paul stated in Romans chapter 12 verse 2, instead be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Is living holy, so to speak, just a command of the Old Testament that was broken when Jesus came? No, it isn't. Whether it is the Old Testament or New Testament, or even now, this is a command that we need to follow as God's people. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14-16 through 16 states, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves, also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. As we live as Christians in this sinful and ungodly world, we must live our life set apart for God from the rest of the world, or in other words, be holy. I hope that you will live as people who are set apart for God today and every day, as well as growing in sanctification through the Holy Spirit. Goodbye and see you next week.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Well, today we begin a brand new trigger in the sex spiral, forgiven and free from pornography. This material is from uh, my new book coming out this summer by God's grace. And we are getting a preview of the 12 triggers of porn addiction. And if you want to start at the beginning of the series, all you have to do is start listening at show number 161. It's titled Just Married. Well, this particular trigger is one that we're all very familiar with. It's temptation. It's <laughs> Some of us are just like, oh, yeah, I know about temptation. Well, this is an area to where many other books or programs actually start. They actually start dealing with addiction at this point. But 
as you've learned over the past several weeks, we've actually had a minimum of two opportunities to exit this spiral. The first one being our awareness, our vulnerability to our sin. And if we choose not to pray, if we choose not to flee or confess what's going on inside of us to a trusted friend, then we will inevitably, I promise you, if we don't pray, flee, or confess, we will go to straight to trigger number two, which is our unhealthy thoughts. It's our shame, which most of the time it's, it's subconscious. We don't even realizing that we're making decisions based out of uh, past behavior. So this is where we have yet another opportunity to pray and flee and confess to exit this spiral. But if we don't choose to do something different, we're going to end up at temptation. So that's where we are today. My question, though, is do we really know what temptation is? In this podcast, we're going to learn three things. Well, hopefully we're going to learn more, more than three. But The majors are this. Number one, whether or not temptation itself is a sin. Uh, number two, how Jesus handled temptations. And number three, which is one of the coolest things that we'll learn, is one of the, the Greek words for temptation and what the Greek word really truly means. So let's get started with today's lesson. It's titled The Difference Between Test and Temptations. Father, tonight we are so grateful that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So let us lay aside every single weight, every sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that you have set before us, that we will indeed look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised our shame, and now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So I pray, Lord God, that we are listening, that we take the time to listen to you tonight. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. How many of you guys are familiar with a ministry called Young Life? Have you guys been up to the Young Life camp up in Williams? And... Um, so God gave me the privilege to, to speak to 400 leaders over the weekend, and it was just a, a really cool young leaders. Like, these are college-age kids, right? And, um, you know, usually I'm, I'm looking at you guys, and when I go up there, I'm looking at, at old grumpy guys. And now I had these 20-year-old uh, faces staring at me, and uh, I, I tell you, this is I've spoken up there three times this past year, um, and this weekend was the first time that I've, I was able to take Amy with me, and it was just so cool to see, in like, in the second breakout session, it was probably 70% women who wanted to know the topic was God, sex, and you, right? So God has me doing all these different talks on so the radio show is called God, Sex, and Current Events, God, Sex, and You, God, Sex, and Your Church, you know, that, that kind of thing. But to see these women really want to understand what God says about sexuality and how they're the crown of creation, and for them to look into their eyes and, and teach them the Word of God, 
it, it was just so cool that these young people, that they're hungering and thirsting for God's work because there's so much confusion in it. So pray for the young leaders, would you? I mean, just it's, it was really because they came up and they, number one, they thanked me, which was encouraging. They asked questions. They wanted to know what to do. Most of them were like, well, I've had sex and I'm doing that. You know, and what do I do? And to teach them to what repentance looks like and to, to go and sin no more. And, and it just, and I wanted to share that with you because I just found it really encouraging with the, the people who are in their, their late teens or their early 20s. And these people were all across the country. And so keep the young, the young people in, in your prayers because um, it gave me hope that there is not, all is not lost when it comes to the, to the young folks. Let's review from last week. So last week we talked about trigger number two, our unhealthy thought life, right? We call this shame. This week we're going to be talking about trigger number three, which is the actual temptation. So last week we learned that there are four self-stories. You got the strong person in the relationship. That, that means that you're, if I'm the strong person, then you must be the weak person. That means you're the problem. You got the weak person, so if I'm the weak person in the relationship, that means I'm the problem. The wounded person, I'm the result of what's been done to me. And then the godly person says, well, my holiness and my worthiness, my acts, that makes me, that depends on whether I've got a good day or bad day. That's where my identity is. Dr. Patrick Carnes, he stated that there are four false belief statements when it comes to sexual sin. Number one, I'm a, ba- I'm, I'm a bad and unworthy person. No one will love me as I am. My needs are never going to be met if I depend on others. And sex is my most important need. And once again, these things, as we go through this process, a lot of this stuff is just subconscious. We have to really, like, I would have never admitted for 20 years that sex is my most important need. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I would have told you to go take a hike. That's dumb. But see, my behavior proved it was true. My behavior proved that sex was my most important need. Why? Because of the amount of time I was looking at porn, the amount of time I was at the strip clubs, the amount of time I was chasing, the amount of time I was doing all these things. It was my behavior that proved those statements were true. Does that make sense? Because that's, that's really important to understand. Like, I, this stuff doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. Well, it may not until we actually get through the, the whole spiral, but at the end of the day, look at your behavior, which will line up to those, to those beliefs, okay? So as we move into uh, temptation, this is trigger number three. If you look at the very first page in your binder there, you'll see the spiral itself. So trigger number one, awareness. Once again, if we, we've got two options with every single one of these triggers. We can confess and flee. The awareness is the moment that I'm aware of what's going on. Oh my gosh, I'm looking too long at someone in the, in the store. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm scrolling through a, a Facebook. Oh my gosh, there's a commercial I shouldn't be watching. Boom, I'm going to turn it off. I'm going to flip the channel. And now we go to, to trigger number three. where a, This is where a lot of books start. It's temptation and acting out. This is where a lot of these guys spend a lot of time here. But as you learn this process, and it is a process, to understand where you are in this cycle, 
and understanding where you are is important because that's how you exit the cycle, right? All right, so temptation is trigger number three. So we've had two opportunities to flee or confess. Temptation is, uh, is talked about in Matthew 4.1, if you guys want to turn there, Matthew 4.1. Is temptation a sin? Why not? You, you guys hear that? Jesus was tempted and Jesus didn't sin, right? So the temptation is not the sin. Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the, wilderness, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, that Greek, that, the Greek word for tempted is parasmos. And that word is a neutral word, which means that it can be a testing for good or it can be a temptation for evil. It's a neutral word. It can mean one or the other. So from God's viewpoint, it can be a test, but from Satan's viewpoint, it can be a temptation. So in other words, God gives you the opportunity to prove who you are by a test. He wants you to prove that you are becoming a man of integrity. But from Satan's standpoint, demonic's standpoint, it's the other way around. He wants to trip you up and prove that you can't get past this, that you're going to continue doing the same thing over and over and over again. Satan intends it for evil, while God intends it for good. So the issue with being tempted is that you really can't see the difference until the, after the temptation or the test. What did you do with it? Because it's your choice, right? Bottom line is that God allows these things to happen in our lives. If I pass the test, then the test proves that I'm learning how to be a person of sexual integrity. If I fail, then that's a temptation in which I was enticed by my own sin. And it's important to note that Jesus was always in conflict with people and Satan, and yet he never sinned. So not only was Jesus tempted in every single way, but he was tempted to the absolute highest form of the temptation. So let's say you've got a scale of temptation, one to 10, right? Now, every time you're tempted, do you sin? Does anybody, every time they're tempted or tested, do they sin? No. So that means it's a choice, right? So a lot of us will here at two and three, this is where we may give in. But Jesus Christ not only passed three, four, five, but he was here at nine and ten to where it was the ultimate form of the, the temptation itself. Everybody understand that? So this is a, a progression that God wants you to experience. He wants you to get past three and four. The thing is, is that most of us never get past three, four, and five. We, keep, we get caught here for years and years and years. And we go, man, it feels like I'm doing the same thing over and over and over, year after year. Well, it is. Because God continues to give you the same test, the same temptation from Satan's standpoint, and you've got to do something different to move here. And yeah, it gets hard. But when you get in through here, this is where you start to experience freedom. Everybody understand that? So this is, and we're going to get to some scripture here that will show you that testing and temptations must happen in your life for you to become free. It's the only way. Does that make sense? Any questions on this?
that Jesus himself not only experienced temptation, he experienced the full weight of the temptation. And he was tempted and he never sinned. Did you catch that? It's by moving through the test or the temptation to where you experience freedom from pornography and freedom in Christ. We can't go around it. We have to go through it. Have you, have you ever wondered why life seems like a broken record? I mean, why do we keep doing the same things over and over and over again, especially when it comes to temptation? See, God loves us so much that he's going to provide an opportunity, opportunity after opportunity, do-over after do-over, it seems, until we learn how to trust in him. Have you ever noticed that? And trust in others as well as we as we walked through these tests and these trials and these temptations. And believe it or not, we must experience the full weight of our tests and, and temptations, just like Jesus did. When we move through these tests and these temptations, being at levels three, four, and five, and we start experiencing them at like eight, nine, and 10, man, this is how we grow. This is how we mature. This is how we change, right? I do. I, I really want to encourage you to stop playing defense here with this thing and start playing offense. And once you start playing offense, man, let me tell you, the whole game changes. It's like, how many excuses am I going to give myself by not putting uh, filtering software on my computers and my mobile devices, for example? Right? I mean, that's playing defense. Well, thank you so much for listening. I'm your host. Dustin Daniels. And if you are in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our weekly community group. It's for men and women, husbands and wives, single, together, divorced, everybody is welcome. And you're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. If you're a Twitter person, you can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. You can rate the show on iTunes. And I would love to hear from you. Email me your questions, DustinDanielsRadio.com. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.20, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living, living in God's power. And that power is the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ.
For those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their life, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999. And the email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Encountering the Risen King, based on John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. If in the mail you got a letter on what looked like very official uh, letterhead from some law firm and it said that you you had a relative that you didn't know about who had just died and left you millions of dollars how would you react there's more scams today than there's ever been and so you would rightly be especially if you live in New York City you'd be rightly skeptical because you get more scams in New York than anywhere but guess what you'd probably give them a call you wouldn't just say, nah, forget it, throw it in the wastebasket. Nah, you, you know, even as skeptical as you were, the offer's too great. Not to look into it a little bit. And uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is like that. Oh, it is very much like that. Uh, most people in New York think it's a scam, by the way. Uh, most people don't believe it. And you may find it something that you'd be extremely skeptical of. But the offer is so great, I do not know how. You couldn't, wouldn't want to look into it. It's, the offer uh, is unlike any other religious offer. Other religions offer a certain amount of uh, some kind of immaterial, spiritual, you know, ethereal future or 
some kind of afterlife, but only the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Christianity offers you what? Offers you a new body in a renewed world, made perfect, made your true country, the country we've all been longing for, in which we live with loved ones, in which we live with God and walk with him. Now, the, the offer's too great. We really are going to need to look into it. And there's no better way to look into it than actually looking at this passage. Not that everything there is to say about the resurrection is in this passage, but there's a lot here. This passage shows that the doctrine, the teaching, the Christian teaching of the resurrection of Jesus is intensely rational, merciful, and personal, and wonderful. So first of all, what I mean by rational? Why is the, the, the Christian teaching of the resurrection rational? Well, the first part of the passage talks about Mary who uh, goes to the tomb, uh, finds that Jesus' body is gone, runs back and tells Peter and John, the other apostle, they run to the tomb. We're told that John, when he gets to the tomb first, he's a bit faster, he bends over, looks into the tomb at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. It says he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. That word saw, when it says Simon Peter saw, it, the, uh, the text doesn't use a Greek word there like the normal Greek word for saw, which is blepo. It's a Greek word that you actually will recognize. It's the word uh, theoreo, from which we get our word theorize. And it's a word that means to, ob- to observe intently looking for an explanation. To observe evidence intently and seeking to find an explanation. It's actually a very scientific word. It, it means reasoning. In fact, look at the description of exactly where the grave clothes were and where, the, uh, where everything was. And it, what it shows us is that when Peter got there and John got there, they looked at what they saw, they looked at the evidence, and they began to furiously reason. So maybe Peter was saying things like this. He was saying, wait a minute, wait a minute here. Just normal grave robbers had come and taken the body. They would never have left all the spices which were in the, the grave clothings, and they, and, and they wouldn't have taken off the grave clothes. They wouldn't have taken the time for that. They're grave robbers. Besides that, the grave clothes keep the body from stinking. But if disciples had come to take the body, why in the world would they have dishonored the body by taking it out naked? Wait a minute, they're thinking, they're thinking. And what do we learn here? And and Mary, too. We're going to look at this in a second, exactly how. They needed evidence in order to believe in the resurrection. Hear that? They needed reasoning and thinking in order to believe in the resurrection. I say that because many people think... If you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus, you just decide. You just say, I decide I'm going to believe. You don't need reason. You don't need thinking. You just decide. That's just not true. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that if you have a Christian faith that is not shot through with reasoning and thinking, that faith will not last through the ups and downs of life. Peter, John, and Mary were not able to believe in the resurrection without a lot of Evidence without a lot of thinking. And therefore, today, if you're going to get the offer, all the great things that are, the resurrection offers, I said in the very beginning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ offers us a great deal, but if you're going to get that, you're going to have to think. You're going to have to look at the evidence. And you say, well, wait, wait, how do you do that? I mean, they, you know, they were there. How do we have any evidence? Well, 
There actually is a fair amount of evidence, and I'm going to ask you to go look for it. It's out there. However, let me just show you two bits of evidence, historical evidence that you can look at and think about that are right here. The first one is Mary Magdalene herself. The first person here to see Jesus Christ is Mary Magdalene. Now, Celsus, who was a Greek philosopher in the second century, he was one of the first great intellectual enemies of Christianity. He wrote a a book that attacked Christianity, trying to show that it was philosophically, intellectually, and rationally specious, that you shouldn't believe in Christianity. He attacked it. Uh, One of his main lines of attack to prove that Christianity didn't, couldn't, you shouldn't believe Christianity, was Mary Magdalene. And let me, let me read you what he said, and you New Yorkers, now you gotta get ready for this, this won't be easy to hear, New Yorkers. He says, how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female, unquote? Now, that was one of his main lines of attack. Because we know that in that time, an era that we would call misogynist, when uh, women were held in very low esteem and they had a very low place in the uh, very low social status. And we also know that every single one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every single one of them, all of the original eyewitnesses to Jesus are women. And therefore it's completely understandable that in that day, Celsus and would have said, this proves that Christianity is intellectually not credible. So it was one of the great weaknesses uh, in the early days in what was considered the case for why Christianity was true. Interestingly enough, today, the fact that all the original witnesses were women, including Mary Magdalene, is actually one of the strengths of the case. Isn't that interesting? One of the strengths of the intellectual case. How so? Well, here's the, here's the point. If you were making up stories about the resurrection, if you were writing them just because you wanted to write them, you would never in that day have made women be the first eyewitnesses. You would have been inviting this kind of attack. So you never would have made it up. Therefore, historians across the spectrum all grant this, that the by far the most historically plausible explanation for why the gospel accounts have women as the first eyewitnesses, by far the most historically plausible explanation is that they were. By far. There's really no other good reason why they would be. And what this means is this. When Paul says that uh, in 1 Corinthians 15... In a, uh, the first Corinthians was a letter everybody understands, all historians understand, was written by Paul less than 20 years, 20 years, not minutes, 20 years, it's early, 20 years after Jesus died. He said there were literally hundreds and hundreds of people who had seen Jesus Christ, eyewitnesses, scores of times, hundreds of eyewitnesses, scores of appearances. And he says, those people mostly are still alive. They're still out there. You still go talk to them. And so here's one bit of evidence, everybody. How do you account for that? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who said, I saw Jesus Christ. And they lived their whole lives saying that. And they died for that. You say, well, people were different back then. People were more likely to believe stories like that. Here's the second bit of evidence. And it's here too. Why was it that Peter and John needed to think in order to believe in the resurrection? In fact, why is it that Mary 
Mary actually see Jesus. The fact is that Jesus Christ has said, I'm the light of the world. He had said, I'm judge of the world. I'm gonna come back and judge the earth. He said, I'm gonna die and rise again. He had said all that. You can, if you read the, re- the first part of the book of John, you see it all. And yet until he actually shows up and doesn't even just start talking to him, but actually points out to her who she he is, she doesn't believe it. Why was it so hard? I mean, if those old people back then, weren't they, didn't they believe these kinds of things? They're not modern, scientifically-minded people. No, no. Here's what you have to understand. Very important. In the days of Jesus Christ, before and after Jesus, the decades before and after Jesus, there were a number of what you could call messianic pretenders. A messianic pretender was someone, a Jewish leader who came along and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm going to uh, lead the Jews and... and and I'm going to bring about liberation. I'm going to throw off the yoke of the oppressor. There were a number of them. One example, for example, was one called Bar Kokhba. Uh, not as famous as Jesus, of course, but nevertheless very famous, and he led a revolt. But he, like Jesus, every one of these messianic pretenders during the Roman era, they were all killed. Every one of them was killed by the Romans. The people that, you know, the, the Messiah was supposed to the Romans whose yoke was the, what the job of the Messiah to throw off. And every other person, every other one of those messianic pretenders, when they were killed, everybody immediately said, ah, that means he wasn't the Messiah. Bar Kokhba, for example, people thought he was the Messiah, and then he was killed, and they said, well, that proves he wasn't. Why? Because though some Jews believed in a resurrection, some did, a few Jews believed in a resurrection, but they believed in a final resurrection at the end of time, And therefore, the idea, number one, that a human being in the middle of time would be resurrected all by himself, way ahead of everyone else, was actually just not something that would have occurred to anybody. And secondly, that this person would be the son of God that we should worship, uh, was inconceivable. And yet something happened, everybody. Something happened immediately after Jesus' death. Because we know, that with, we know that from the earliest days, Christians who were largely Jewish followers had begun to worship a human being as God, though the Jews were radical monotheists that were taught against that in every way. And they also were saying that there was an individual who was raised from the dead ahead of everybody else. There was just like an overnight change in the worldview. What did that? Their worldview was totally changed overnight. There was no debating back and forth. It took, you know, years. No, no, just like that, something happened to them. And then they spent the rest of their lives willing to die for it. There's a uh, Japanese writer, a Catholic Japanese writer named Shusako Endo, who said this. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you will be forced to believe that something hit that, the disciples that was every bit as amazing may be different, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. For if we try to explain the changed lives of the early Christians, you will find yourself making leaps of faith as great as if we had believed in the resurrection to start with. If you don't believe in the resurrection, something else, every bit is electrifying, every bit is category-busting, every bit is paradigm-destroying as the resurrection must have happened to them. You can see it. They weren't willing, they, you know, it wasn't their idea. Something overwhelmed their categories. Look, that's not the only evidence. Here's what I'm trying to say. There's evidence. Those are just two pieces. How do you account for that? 
There's other evidence. So go, find it, and think. And if you do, and if you begin to say, maybe I believe in the resurrection, and here's the second thing we find in the resurrection, we see mercy there. The resurrection, the teaching of the resurrection is not just intensely rational, it's intensely merciful. Look at Jesus. First of all, notice how he comes after Mary. Mary, as much as she's an admirable character, as much as as she's filled with love for Jesus, she's going around weeping. You know, Peter and John, they didn't even come to start with. And when they go, they say, and they go back. And she's running, I miss him, I want him, where is he, how could they do this? I mean, she's altogether an admirable character, filled with passionate love for Jesus Christ. And yet she's clueless. <laughs> and yet uh, she actually has too small a view of him. She's looking for a dead Jesus. She's looking for a human-only Jesus. Her categories, just like yours and mine, make it extraordinarily difficult for her to believe what's actually happened. And therefore, he has to come and reveal himself to her. But let me just show you two things about that. The one is, look how gentle he is. Don't you love how gentle he is? He comes up and he says, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? He's asking questions. And uh, counselors certainly know that if you know that something's messing up, your counselee, the best thing you can do is, rather than just say, well, here's what's messing you up, best thing you do is ask questions to get the person to discover it for him or herself. To own it from the inside. Not just to have it imposed from the outside, say, all right, all right. No, no, to own it, to understand it. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. See the gentleness of Jesus. But the point is, he does have to come. The point is that if there's anybody here who loves Jesus, it's Mary Magdalene, is passionate for Jesus, and yet she's clueless. And she would never have found him unless he found her. She would never have discovered who he was unless he had revealed himself to her. Humanly speaking, faith is impossible, everybody. I know that sounds like I, <laughs> sounds like I just contradicted myself. I said, you got to think, you got to think, you got to look at the evidence. It's got to be rational. And yet, in the end, when you find him, you'll know he was helping. Because in the, in the end, human, humanly speaking, faith is impossible unless he comes and opens our minds and opens our hearts. And by the way, he's doing that right now in this text. He's doing that right now through the Holy Spirit present in this gathered assembly. He's doing it right now. See the gentleness of Jesus. See the grace of Jesus. See that he initiates. He's the one that comes to us. In some ways, the story of Mary encapsulates the whole message of the Bible. And what is that message? Well, the message is especially if you realize who she is. Because he doesn't show up to Peter and John. He could have. He shows up to Mary. And then he says, after he reveals himself, go and tell my brethren. Now you realize that moment, Jesus, there's only one person who's ever met the risen Christ and now has the message of the gospel to send into the world. Only one person. And you don't think Jesus did that deliberately? Who was Mary Magdalene? Luke chapter eight, verse two and three says, she had seven demons cast out of her. And by the way, the word seven uh, is symbolic, you know, right in the, in the Bible. And it, it means a host. And if you know anything about a demoniac, I mean, 
Uh, let's not talk too much. I don't have time to go into all that, but you know, if you go to Mark chapter 5, you'll see another description of a demoniac. A demoniac is someone who's running around half naked, crying out, talking to himself or herself, social outcast. And that was Mary Magdalene. And so here's Jesus Christ, has everybody in the world he could reveal himself to and make the first, as it were, messenger, the first ambassador. And he chooses a woman, not a man. He chooses a reformed mental patient, not some seminary graduate. And he says, you are my ambassador of the world. How much more vividly, powerfully, and clearly could Jesus Christ say to us, my salvation is not based on pedigree, it's not based on moral attainment, it's not based on talent, it's not based on, uh, on good works. I save by my work, not by your work. I save not those people who think they're strong, but only those who know they're weak and they cast themselves on me. See, resurrection faith, the content of it and the cause of it is grace. You only believe because he's been grace, he comes to you. And the content of it, what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? It's to believe that he saves you, not you save yourself. He has done everything. So the resurrection is intensely rational, it's intensely merciful, but lastly, it's intensely personal. Look how he reveals himself in the end. It's amazing what he does. Now, when, you know, he's returned. He's back. How does he reveal himself? Not the way Superman returns. You know, Superman does it the way we think it should be done. He returns by uh, saving a jetliner in the middle of a stadium to cheering crowds. And, of course, on cable TV, so millions of other people see it too. That's how Superman returns. That's not how Jesus returns. He doesn't even say, now why didn't, when, <laughs> why didn't he say, it's me? Wouldn't that be what you would do? I mean, she's saying, you're the gardener and I'm looking for, <laughs> hey, it's me. Instead, he says, Mary. This is what he's saying. He doesn't say it's me. That's abstract. He says, Mary. He, by the way, he also doesn't say Miss Magdalene. Here's what he says, I think. He says, I am not the dead founder of an ethical religion that you get to know over the centuries by following my rules. I am a living savior and I'm alive now. And you can have a personal relationship with me. I can come into your life. I, I, you can have personal communion with me. And as you do that, you will discover the deepest secret of who you are. See, he uses her name to reveal himself because those things come together, by the way. What? We live in a culture that's more obsessed with identity than any culture had ever been. And every, our culture says what you do is you look inside yourself and decide who you are and then you assert who you are no matter what anybody else thinks. So you look inside, you decide who you are, you assert yourself no matter who, what anybody says and that won't work. And the reason it won't work is that we are social beings. We need someone we adore to adore us. We need someone we respect to respect us. We need someone outside who we love to love us. And then we have a secure identity and only then. And Jesus Christ says, I am the ultimate 
great person in the universe and I love you personally, expensively, the cost of my own life, and eternally. Know me and you'll know yourself. Connect with me, the risen Lord, and know my love on your heart. And you will find the deepest secret of who you are and what I made you to be. And you know, when she grabs him, it literally says, don't hold me so tight. And he says, because I'm going to, I'm ascending. And here's what I believe he means. He's saying, Mary, I can see why you grabbed me hard. You're afraid of ever losing me, but I want you to know I'm about to go to heaven. I'm going to be at the right hand of the Father. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you will have me forever. And you'll have a sense of my love even deeper than you have right now. And nothing, no, even the deepest dungeon will not be able to separate me from you or you from me. Annie Dillard, Pulitzer Prize winning novelist said once, I'd been my whole life a bell and I never knew it till I was picked up and rung. To have Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, not just someone you believe in abstractly, but someone who you believe in by putting faith in his death and resurrection as your salvation and then to sense him come into your life As he tells you who he is, you will learn who you are. You'll be like a bell, picked up and rung, and you'll say, so this is what I was for. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you for giving us all that we need in order to know and love you through your risen son. And we pray that you would help us all hearing these words to know the riches of the offer of the resurrection because we have taken them by faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.